I do the same thing. I told you that I never would. Told you I changed. Even when I knew I never could. Know that I can't find nobody else as good as you. I need you to stay. Need you to stay. I get drunk, wake up, I'm wasted still. I realize the time that I wasted you. I feel like you can't feel the way y'all feel. I'll be fucked up if you can't be right Setapani with the CBS World News Roundup. Investigators don't seem close to finding John Doe number two, but the legion of lookalike second suspects picked up and then let go in connection with the Oklahoma City bombing is growing. Attorney General Reno says that's how police work goes. From Fox 25, this is the 9 o'clock news. I think it's very likely he was murdered. I'm not able to prove it. I have, I have temporarily classified the death as undetermined. You see a body covered with blood removed from the room, as Mr. Trent Adu was, soaked in blood, covered with bruises, and you try to gain access to the scene and the government of the United States says, no, you can't. There are questions about the death of Kenneth Trent Adu that will never be answered because of the actions of the United States government. Whether those actions were intentional or whether they were through incompetence, I don't know. It was botched. Or worse, it was planned. Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. Uh, you can find me on No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major auto podcasters and Odyssey as well. Once again, credit to Jinx for that edit. Uh, also, credit to my uh, friend Junkie Jeff, who shows up for these streams often. He's also uh, one of my mutuals on Twitter. Uh, he was the one who was able to attain that for me because, uh, you know, anyone knows Jinx knows he's been, his account's been nuked many, many times, keeps coming back. Uh, so that's one of the ones he nabbed. I think I'm fresh out of them. So if anyone knows of any other Jinx ones that are related to the OKC one or any other good edits, I think I might have one edit that kind of sort of fits that actually Richard here, my guest, uh, sort of showed me, although that's more vague. Uh, it's more of a overall type CIA, FBI type thing of, you know, shitty or stuff they do. But it kind of applies since it sort of touches the OKC thing. But, you know, as I just said, my guest today is Richard Booth. Um uh, today we are. I'm going to be doing the play wall thing. So if you're watching the 19th, it's a live stream, uh, and you can see it publicly. If not, if you're watching this later, it'll be roughly a week or so later. Uh, you know the way this works is in the meantime, it goes behind. Uh, it goes like if you miss that live stream, it'll go behind a paywall. The only way to get that is patreon.com. There's no way Jose 2020. The lowest level being two bucks. The highest level being 20. 20 dollar being the sponsors. My sponsors are Scenic Ray of the Whiskey and Tea Podcast. I have Jeremy, who is on Twitter, at Jeremy Rhymes, if you want to follow him there. He also has an Etsy store, etsy.com slash shop slash Raising Liberty. Uh, I have Mikkel Thorup of the Expat Money Show. So if you're someone who wants to you know, move out of the country, lighten your tax burden, uh, anything somewhat related to that, he's your guy. He does it as a business. He also has a uh, podcast as well. So, I mean, if you like really want to do it, definitely go hit up the business. But if you just kind of want to get sort of familiar with it, you can go check out his show. 
uh, yeah, uh, like, you know, with anyone who's been following this, uh, you know, as mentioned, Richard Booth, we're continuing my o our OKC bombing series. This is the fourth part. Uh, we're still still churning them out. So you guys are still interested. I'm still digging it. Uh, I'm still loving it. So uh, I do want to let you guys know um, Thursday, the 21st, um, you know, if, uh, and this one's not going to behind a paywall just because the importance of it. Uh, I think I mentioned the last one as well. I have the widow of Duncan Lemp, uh, who was literally in bed with him when it happened, pregnant with his child as well. Uh, you know, the day he was murdered by the cops, uh, she'll be coming on my show. That one's not going to be, I'm not doing super political. -y. This can be more to, it's gonna be more like Oprah ish, if you will. And I also do want to, uh, get her side of the story, her account of the events, because I believe this is her first public appearance. Uh, so aside from like seeing newspaper articles with, you know, that were probably also put through her lawyer or whatever, uh, this is probably the first time publicly you'll be able to get her side of the story because uh, the cops changed their story something like four or five times, something ridiculous. Uh, so yeah, definitely show up for that. Share that around. I think that one's going to be really important. I think, you know, uh, oh, hey, Junkie Jeff, I saw you made it. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, definitely show up for that one. Uh, you know, share it around. I think that's really important. Need to get that one out uh, to you know see the effects of things like uh, red flag laws or no knock warrants, which is you know what caused him to die, caused Breonna Taylor to die, caused Amir Locke, uh, many other people as well. Um, yeah, uh, definitely show up for that one. Uh, trying to think of anything else. Uh, yeah, do, go check out toplobster.com. Use Jose at checkout for 10% off. He does all my art. He does a ton of other shows art. He has his own art that's, you know, not just podcast art as well. He's a lot of good merch there you can get. Definitely go check him out. And let's go ahead and get Richard in here and do this. Hey, what's up, man? Hey, how are you doing? Good, good, good. Uh, I'm ready to do this. I'm, I'm excited. Today we're covering uh, the major figure we'll cover today is Nichols, uh, which is the uh, co-conspirator. Uh, which is funny that it took so long for us to get to him because while he is the one that the they always try to position, you know, an official narrative as the number two in reality kind of isn't. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into that. I do think it's fun. We kind of been talking in between. And when our last episode we talked uh, near the end, I kind of made a comment that it sounded like he was kind of a useful idiot. But it sounded to me like you did some digging and maybe I don't know if maybe you changed your mind of that or maybe you had a more nuanced view as opposed to just useful idiot now. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that because that's definitely the vibe I get is that the uh, the officials made you want to think he's an important guy. But it's almost like a magic trick. Look, look over here. Uh, don't pay attention to these other things. So, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, real quick, though, I do want to give you an intro because I want to keep reminding people that this isn't just bullshit. This is you've done your work. You got sources that, you know, we got the receipts. Uh, so if you could provide that real quick before we go into Nichols. Absolutely. So people, they can find uh, the documents and news clippings and, and various sources that I've gathered at libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC. Um, I put all of my material on there because I would like students or people researching the case to have access to this material in case they decide they want to write about it. So you can go there and find a whole bunch of things from FBI documents to court transcripts to whatever. And uh, yeah, that would be a, a good starting point for anybody who is a student who wants to dig into the case. All right, awesome. Let's go ahead and crack into Nichols. Has your opinion changed on him since the last time we talked? I know you knew but, a bunch about him before, but I know you did even more digging and you seem to have changed your opinion maybe slightly or maybe that's just my perspective. 
Well, not necessarily change my opinion. Um, what I should say is that he definitely served as, like you'd said, kind of a useful idiot. He served in that respect because he was a great person for the feds to point to, to say, okay, yes, this was a criminal conspiracy. And they know that originally there were two suspects that were named in the paper. And so it's very helpful for them to be able to point the finger at Nichols and say, okay, here's our other guy. But the, the issue is, is, of course, that John Doe number two and the second suspect was absolutely not Terry Nichols. That was a different person. And so with Terry Nichols, he played a supporting role in the whole bombing plot. And what we're going to do here is I'd like to go over a kind of a, a timeline of events where I'll go over some key dates and I'll explain kind of how Nichols was involved in them. And we'll also discuss, uh, discuss his trips to the Philippines is that those are very important. And there's been a lot of speculation made about Nichols supposedly meeting with Ramsey Youssef in the Philippines. Um, we will talk a little bit about that. I'll explain maybe why I'm not entirely sold on that idea. But at the same time, I do believe that there is something highly irregular about his trips to the Philippines uh, that, that does deserve more scrutiny. Okay, well, I guess maybe we can start with... Uh what role or, or actually you can decide since you're the one kind of crafting the narrative here but in my head i guess uh, to let people know what role uh supposedly to the official narrative nichols played into the bombing because they definitely position him as the number two uh though when you look into it it doesn't i mean don't get me wrong he definitely played a role but i don't think the role that they insinuate he played was as strong as it is and i know he got railroaded with a pretty insane jail sentence uh don't get me wrong it was you know oklahoma city bombing was uh uh, egregious but you know from the little bit i looked into it seemed to be the role he had it seemed to be a disproportionate jail sentence in my opinion perhaps i'm wrong uh or we can start out with who he is it, it, that's up to you uh but I'm, I'm sure all these will be answered in good time i just uh, i guess we'll start where you want to start with those Sure, sure. So, yeah, he definitely supported or that is to say served a supporting role in the bombing. He was there and he was doing things like helping McVeigh um, obtain bomb components. He was renting storage lockers where he was storing those bomb components and storing material that was stolen from Roger Moore. And but the, the interesting thing is, is he did not seem to quite know um, when McVeigh was going to strike or in may even not not have known where it was going to be and one of his trips to the philippines is uh, we'll talk about that but it sort of indicates that so he's helping mcveigh and doing these things and a lot of times he's almost under duress mcveigh is is uh is always has a firearm on him and in some cases was basically sort of bullying nichols and making vague threats and nichols was just kind of going along with it and just doing whatever he had to do, and at one point even um, seemed to want to pull out of the bombing plot entirely in March of 1995, and we'll talk about that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go down uh, kind of a timeline of events with some brief, uh, well, kind of with some facts, and there will be certain areas where I'll stop to digress a little bit more about that particular fact and how it uh, pertains to the whole bombing plot. All right. Uh, yeah, let's uh, get into it. Let's. Uh, who is this guy? Uh, uh, Nichols. All right. So with Terry Nichols, um, he entered the army in 1988, um, the same year that, uh, that McVeigh did. And he was kind of actually kind of old for someone who is going to basic training. He was like in his 30s. And so he was considered kind of an old man among the group that was there in basic training. And um, 
that's where uh, Nichols and McVeigh and Fortier all met one another. And they were, um, Nichols was with Fortier and McVeigh at Fort Riley in September of 1988. Now, um, ultimately, Nichols was not in the Army for very long. He was only there for maybe about a year. He got a hardship discharge in uh, May of 1989 uh, because his mother needed help. Um, she owned a farm and she needed help back at the farm. So he gets this hardship discharge where he leaves but then he does maintain contact with McVeigh and with Fortier in the years thereafter. Real and quick, so, before you yeah. keep going on, uh, yeah. just a question, because I think this might be something other people are thinking as well. Uh, did he at all uh, enter the Special Forces training like uh, McVeigh or no? Because no, I know many, a lot of people, my thought is like perhaps he was sheep dipped possibly as well. So I know that would be something that would lead into it. Uh, so. I guess definitely not. Like yeah, okay. he was like he he would be not a good candidate for special forces. <laughs> he, he even didn't really seem to be cut out very well for life in the army. But, you know, uh, in his life, he seemed to go off in multiple directions and didn't quite seem to have found himself in what he wanted to do with his life. And so this is why you see him in, you know, in his 30s joining, you know, the military because he just hasn't quite figured out what he wants to do. Um, but he did make friendships there that were lifelong friendships, and that that was McVeigh and Fortier. Yeah, to his so, detriment. But yeah, sorry to me to throw you off. Yeah. I just know a lot of people probably head went there as well. Uh, you know, did a little bit of time, then oh no, now I got to get out. Just kind of like McVeigh did. But you know, obviously McVeigh went the special forces route, which makes it a little bit more believable. I don't think they would uh, target this guy. I mean, if we're taking the sheep dip route, if anything, it's probably more likely McVeigh knew this guy to be kind of a. Uh, uh, maybe not necessarily a pushover, but someone easily uh, maybe that looks for social approval that you can kind of twist ways that you want something to be twisted. So right, but, yeah, pushover is ag absolutely a great description of of Terry Nichols. Yeah, you know, and so um, when he gets out of the army uh, in 1989, he does go to help his mom with the farm, and in 1989 was also the first year. Um, that he made a trip to the Philippines. And what he did is he had arranged for this trip to the Philippines through this company called Paradise Shelton Tours. It was like a, a mail order bride service out of Scottsdale, Arizona. And so he goes over to the Philippines in uh, November of 1989. And while he's over there, um, he is when he first meets uh, Marifay which would be his wife. Uh, this is, he married her. And so he meets Marifay in the Philippines and between, I want to say August and September of 1990, he meets her. And at that time she was only 15 years old and they did not know one another for very long before he got married to her. He, he married her in uh, Cebu city in the Philippines uh, in November of 1990. And so he marries this uh, mail order bride. He barely knows her. You know, she was 15 when they met. And then uh, shortly thereafter, just four days after they were married, he returns to the United States uh, alone and she stays over in the Philippines. And this is what we'll begin to see is there's this pattern where Terry Nichols um, continues to go back and forth between the United States and the Philippines, oftentimes visiting Marifay there. And then she would come back to the United States as well and stay with him for a while. And then she would 
go back to the Philippines to visit family. And so this is one thing that people like Jane and Davis and some of these other researchers who suggest that uh, Nichols was uh, using the mail order bride deal as a sort of cover. Um, they suggest that he's really down there meeting with like these Arab terrorists and that he's pretending, you know, to visit his wife as a cover. But one thing you have to note is, you know, he met her and he went there in 8990, which is, you know, years before any kind of bombing plot was put together. So that's one thing there that I don't think quite tracks. But having said that, we will find that Nichols's final trip to the Philippines is very suspicious for a number of reasons. And so we'll go into that. And I believe that uh, it does deserve further scrutiny. And so he returns to the United States alone in uh, 1990. And he uh, makes then another trip to the Philippines next on July 21st of 1991. Now, one thing to note here is that Terry Nichols' passport records document at least five flights to the Philippines from August 1990 through January of 95. However, evidence from the trials indicates that he took up to as many as 20 trips to the Philippines. And you have to understand that one round, uh, round trip ticket to the Philippines was over $2,000. And so where is he getting all of this money to uh, continually travel back and forth. And that very much is a um, question that remains. And it's something that his ex-wife, Lana, he married a woman named Lana and they were divorced obviously before he married Marifay. But Lana had these questions too. She was asking, where is he coming up with all the money for this? Likely Roger Moore. (laughs) Well, part of it, you know, the more robbery, you know, that definitely helped enrich him. Um, So, with this in mind, um, the, the, he's taking all these trips. On his second trip here, he returns to the United States with Marifay, and he brings her back to the United States. At that time, uh, she was seven months pregnant, and the child was not Terry's. And it was someone else over in the Philippines, but you know, he stays loyal to her, stays with her, and brings her back to the United States uh, pregnant. And she gives birth in September of 1991, and they named the child uh, Jason, and uh, Terry, you know, adopts Jason as his own. Uh, the family settles in Las Vegas, um, where uh, that is where uh, Nichols's uh, ex-wife Lana lives, and his son with Lana, whose name is Josh. Um, and so they're staying, staying over there. Now, between '91 and '93, um, the Nichols family. Uh, kept moving alternately between uh, Las Vegas, uh, Decker, Michigan, and even a couple of months they tried living in the Philippines, but that didn't work out very well for Nichols. He wanted to come back, and so he um, did end up coming back to the United States. So the, the what we want to focus on here, I think, with Nichols is since we have sort of a rough backstory, who he is, how he met McVeigh, what his situation was like, what we want to do is fast forward to the moments in time when he begins associating a great deal with Tim McVeigh and when then the bombing plot starts forming. And so where I'd like to start there is in the fall of 1993. In the fall of 93, uh, Terry Nichols and Tim McVeigh traveled to Arkansas 
to look for property and to go to a gun show. And this will be one of multiple times that uh, Nichols and McVeigh are looking for property in Arkansas. Now, what's notable about this particular visit is that on October 11th of 1993, uh, while they're both in Fayetteville, Arkansas, Terry Nichols stays at a Motel 6 and he checks in there alone. Meanwhile, where's Tim McVeigh? Well, I have an idea as to where he might be because the very next day, October 12th, uh, Timothy McVeigh gets a traffic ticket and he gets this ticket 15 minutes away from Elohim City. And I believe that when on this trip to Arkansas, which is right, it's on a border, uh, the city that they went to is right on the border of Oklahoma and Arkansas, where Elohim City is located. So I think that uh, during this trip, uh, Nichols stayed at this motel. And I think that um, Timothy McVeigh made a short visit to Elohim City when he was there uh, based on that traffic ticket that was located right next to EC. And so this is just one uh, example of where they're kind of working together on the gun show circuit. And while they're doing that, McVeigh is forging these bonds and relationships with these extremist figures who play a big part uh, in this whole narrative. And so that is in 93. And when I looked over my timeline for 93 and what I had for Nichols, there wasn't a whole lot there that really was relevant uh, to the story uh, of the bombing plot. So I'm going to kind of skip over um, the rest of the things that occurred in that time period and move forward then to um, 1994. And so in February of 94, um, Nichols moved to Kansas. And at this time, again, Marifei is traveling back and forth between the Philippines and the United States. And Nichols is making a great deal of phone calls to the Philippines to talk to her. And later on, uh, Jaina Davis will kind of this uh, writer uh, and newscaster who wrote a, a book about the bombing saying that it was Arab terror. She'll make a big much ado about his phone calls to the Philippines, suggesting he's calling Arab terrorists or whatever. But you have to understand if his wife is living there, Obviously, you know, he's calling his wife. And that's what I think, you know, is what was happening there. So uh, in 1994, it do, seems... Do you know where, at all why an Arab uh, terrorist came up? Because that seems like a very unfounded and a weird conjecture if you have nothing to suggest it whatsoever. Well, there there is something that is suggestive in the fact that these Arab terrorists named Ramzi Youssef and Abdul Hakim Murad uh, did have a base of operations out of the Philippines. And so they were operating there around the same time uh, that Nichols was. And what happens here is, is that Jane and Davis um, looks at something that uh, one of these uh, terrorist guys working in a group called Abu Sayyaf, uh, he was captured and interrogated. And in, during his interrogation, he said that, uh, that um, Ramzi Youssef and Abdul Hakim Murad had met in the early 90s in the Philippines at a meeting like this terrorist meeting. And they said there was an American present that they called the farmer. And, you know, Nichols was a farmhand. He did work on on ranches and farms. And so the theory that's put forward by Jana Davis and others is that Nichols is the farmer that was at this meeting with Ramsey Youssef. And then what she tries to do as well then is take his phone calls that he that he has where he's placing all these calls 
uh, to this rooming house in the Philippines, she's saying that, well, maybe he's making contact with these Arab terrorists, when I, I believe that a more reasonable explanation is he's calling to talk to his wife. When you look at the pattern of the phone calls, too, it looks a lot like a guy who is trying to reach his wife. For example, he'll go and there was one day where he made like 13 phone calls. He called from one pay phone, no answer. So he goes to another pay phone, calls from that one, no answer. So he goes to a third page. So he goes to like four or five different phones where he's calling because he thinks it looks to me like he thinks that she's avoiding his calls. So he's going and he's using different phones to try and reach her. That, that I think looks like a more reasonable explanation than suggestions that he's trying to talk to some terrorist. But on the other hand, there are going to be some things we talk about that give us um, reason to be very skeptical of his trips to the Philippines and to think that something might have been going on. And it's very reasonable to believe that. And I'll go into the details as to why. And I think we do need to uh, put scrutiny on this um, for these reasons that, that I'll mention. Okay. So, so in, in um, 1994, it seems Terry Nichols is trying to form sort of a normal life. He moves to Kansas. Uh, he starts working at a place called Donahue Ranch. It's a ranch, and he's a farmhand there. And he works there for about six months. And he has his normal job then at the Donahue Ranch. And he's not, you know, he's not making income by going to the gun show circuit and doing things like that. He really does seem to be um, trying to forge this normal domestic life and support his, his, uh, his family. Um, however, that doesn't go for very long. Maybe that's the first part of 1994, but once we get into the fall of 1994, um, his life starts to get a lot uh, more complicated as Tim McVeigh intersects with it. And so what we have here then is in September of 1994, uh, he puts in uh, his notice at Donahue Ranch and that he he tells uh, the guy that he works with there that he's going to go be uh, working on the gun show circuit with his friend Tim, and so he he's quitting he's quitting this job, and he says he's going to go on this gun show circuit, and the very same day that he quits that job, he purchases uh, 40 50 pound bags of fertilizer from a co-op. Um, in uh, in Kansas called McPherson Co-op, and he, he purchased those under a fake name, Mike Havens. And what we're going to find here is just a flurry of things that happen in September and October and November of 94 that are all um, obviously indicative that Terry is fully participating in the bombing plot, and he's a key component of it. So after buying this fertilizer in September, uh, the next thing you have is on October 3rd of 1994, uh, Nichols and McVeigh carry out a burglary at a co-op, or that is a, a quarry. There's a quarry there, and they steal a bunch of blasting caps and dynamite uh, from this quarry. And it's, it was proven in court that Nichols was involved in this. He had a Makita drill that he used to, to drill the locks and to get in there. And it was absolutely proven beyond a shadow of any doubt that uh, that Nichols was involved with this. So he's starting to involve himself with criminal activity with McVeigh. And he is carrying out actions, obviously, in furtherance of the bombing conspiracy, buying this 50-pound uh, bags of uh, fertilizer. And then uh, not too long after their uh, burglary at the quarry 
on October 17th of 94, Nichols rents a storage locker in Council Grove, Kansas under a fake name, Joe Kyle. And we'll find this is a pattern with Terry Nichols that he's using these fake names, Mike Havens and Joe Kyle to rent these storage lockers. And ostensibly he's using these to store uh, the bomb components, to store fertilizer and then later uh, to store proceeds from the Moore robbery. And so then the day after he rents this storage locker in Council Grove on October 18th, Nichols purchases uh, 2,000 pounds of fertilizer, uh, once again from the McPherson Co-op under the name of Mike Havens. So what we're seeing here is in the fall of 94, they're starting to source the components for the ammonium nitrate uh, bomb. And uh, then, so just again, within days, uh, we have another action in furtherance of the bombing conspiracy, and that's on October 21st of 94, uh, Nichols and McVeigh are in Dallas, and they go to a racetrack, and at that racetrack, they purchase uh, three, three drums of nitromethane, and the nitromethane they're going to use as a booster in the bomb. So now they've got the 2,000 pounds of uh, fertilizer. Then they have 40, 50-pound bags of fertilizer. They've got uh, three drums of nitromethane. So they've got a good portion of what they need uh, for the bomb. There's still yet more to do on their agenda. And so uh, the day after they get the nitromethane, um, they are in Tulsa, Oklahoma on it's October 21st and 22nd, 1994. There's a gun show in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this is where Andy Strassmeyer admits that he did meet Timothy McVeigh. Now, of course, like I, like I said in our previous episode, I think that they had a longer relationship than that. And that this is merely a situation where Strassmeyer will admit that he met McVeigh at that gun show and then leave it at that. So they're associating with these various uh, criminal elements. They're purchasing the materials they need for the bomb. And in the fall of 94, uh, ultimately, we see the, the bombing plot coalescing. Now, while this is happening uh, with McVeigh and Nichols, uh, you have to understand that at the same time, there is this law enforcement operation going on at Elohim City with the ATF, with Carol Howe. She's going undercover there, and she's saying that they're talking about carrying out some type of terrorist attack. And so these things are, are happening at the same time, and I believe that they're, are, they're uh, very much related. And so, uh, again, in um, October of 94, we have yet another event happen here that relates uh, directly to the bombing plot. Um, and that is, um, um, I'm sorry to say, I mean, what I mean is uh, after they purchased the nitro. Um, it's going to be in uh, November of 94. So November of 94, um, Terry Nichols, Tim McVeigh, and a third individual who called himself Robert Jacks, uh, visited a real estate broker in Missouri. And I mentioned earlier how Nichols and McVeigh had gone to Missouri looking for property and looking for property in Arkansas. Well, this in this uh, case, in uh, November of 94, these uh, three people visit a guy named Bill Maloney. He has a real estate office and he had property for sale that included a cave. Uh, this property had, you know, a cave on it. and um, uh, the FBI said that they thought uh, that perhaps 
um, McVeigh and Nichols were looking for possibly a hideout, someplace where they might be able to hide out after the bombing, something like that. And what happens here is we have three people working at this real estate office. We've got Bill Maloney, we have his coworker, Joe Davidson, and we have the secretary, Nora Young. And what they all said is that um, originally, um, well, a car pulls up and then initially two people come into the office. And the two people that come into the office are a guy who says his name is Bob Jacks or Robert Jacks and Terry Nichols. And they talk about buying this property. Now, Maloney said that Robert Jacks was definitely like the man in charge. He was the, the like the leader of the group. He did most of the talking. He was very articulate. He asked most of the questions. Terry Nichols remained relatively quiet. Does this Jacks fellow fit the uh, the? Does he fit the description of anyone else? Uh, any of the other main characters? Like, because I know they they use fake names a lot, so I, I don't know. If, right. Or is just another random character that we don't know of? It is absolutely believed that Robert Jacks is a fake name. It's an alias, and I have not been able to pinpoint who among those people we know Jacks might be. He has a unique description. Um, and it doesn't seem to fit any of the other names. He very much is an enigma. And he's someone that the FBI seriously pursued for about five years. Um, we have a sketch of him that was produced by um, FBI's sketch artist, Jeannie Boylan. And uh, she produces very detailed, excellent sketches. And um, the, the sketch of Jax was one that law enforcement considered to be very sensitive. Um, it's one that, number one, for example, they did not share with other law enforcement. They did not share it with the media and on an FBI document that I have that has um, the Jack sketch, it even has a disclaimer on there where it says, this is sensitive. It is on a need to know basis. Do not share this with, uh, with media uh, or even other law enforcement. And that really got my attention. It's very unusual to say very not suggestive, <laughs> very, very suggestive and unusual too. than saying don't share with other law enforcement. I, why you would say that, I don't know. But ultimately, what we can garner from this is that this Jack's figure um, clearly had to have been a part of this bombing plot, because at the time he is visiting this property to buy this real estate, it is. Uh, central to the bombing plot. You know, they, they've just purchased all this fertilizer. They've purchased the nitromethane. They've got the storage lockers. All less than a month within doing all of that, this trio is looking to buy this property. And that's why the FBI considered Jax to be such a key suspect because of the timing and, and you know, that he was there at that time. Now, one thing to, to note about this whole Jax thing is, um, if people are interested in this, I wrote an essay about this on my Medium page called Mystery in Cassville. And Mystery in Cassville is all about um, what people might call John Doe number three or Robert Jacks. And it goes over all the details you'd ever want to know about that. Um, and uh, one thing I'd like to mention about it is that um, law enforcement, when they raided um, Terry Nichols' home, um, they got Marifay's address book and they found in Marifay's address book the name Jax spelled out. It was written on a uh, empty page in the address book in various spellings, J-A-C-K-S, 
uh, J-A-C-Q-U-E-Z. So his jacks was spelled out multiple times and they didn't ever determine whose handwriting that was. And so I think that's really interesting because uh, Terry Nichols uh, seems to be uh, protecting this Robert Jacks figure. Uh, as in 2005, he's uh, interviewed by the FBI. And in his uh, FBI interviews in 2005, he was asked about his visit to Cassville, Missouri to look into this property that had a cave on it. And in the FBI documents from 2005, if we're to believe the FBI, if I mean, assuming they're, they're being honest in, in these documents, um, it says that um, Nichols uh, said that he had visited Cassville with just McVeigh. He said it was just him and McVeigh, no one else, just him and McVeigh. But meanwhile, we have Bill Maloney. He said, absolutely, there were three people and this Jack's guy was, he was the boss. We got Joe Davidson, he said the same thing. And we got Nora Young, the secretary, said the same thing. And the FBI went so far as to even put Nora Young under hypnosis to see if they could uh, get any additional information from her, you know, about it. So they, they took this Jack's figure very seriously. And it's interesting, they never were able to identify him. And of course, a large reason for that is he, you know, he's using an alias. Jax is obviously not his real name. And meanwhile, the FBI is doing things like pulling all the phone records for anybody named Jax, or they even subpoenaed records from Newsweek and some other publications for their subscriber records to find if they had anybody named Jax. And so it's dumb because they're looking for people whose names are Jax when it's clear that it's not the man's real name. You know. Seems maybe borderline intentional. Uh, Almost. I, I do want to address. I see some of you guys in the chat. I do want to let you guys know. Depending on how much time we have in the end, I will uh, address some of the questions. So if you guys want to throw questions there, you can continue doing so. Just don't think I'm ignoring you. Uh, we will bring it up at the end, depending on how much time we have, and uh, depending on how much time we have, it'll depend on which questions we bring up. Uh, but yeah, if there's anyone that sounds pertinent to what we're talking about, I'll definitely bring it up. Uh, and obviously, like I've said before, you know, if you really want to make sure it goes up, give me the the little super chat or whatever, and it will for sure. But regardless, I'll try to get any pertinent questions and bring them up. But sorry, I didn't mean to throw you off. Figured it no problem. Mind. Yeah, and any questions, yeah. I'm I'm happy to answer. I'm um and going over my notes here, I'm not seeing the chat, so I Paul, I'm not ignoring <laughs> you guys, but just want to let you know if you have anyone has questions, I'm happy to answer those. So, um, with with what happened here in Missouri and this Jack's figure, it's highly suspicious to me because we have a, a person we have a sketch of, we have multiple witnesses to this individual, we have evidence in the form of this uh, page from Merafe's address book where someone is writing Jack's over and over, and we have the fact that Nichols seems to be covering for this guy by saying that only he and McVeigh uh, had visited the property. I just find all of that incredibly suspicious. And I think that there is more to this. And this guy is definitely an additional suspect, uh, given that he was there at the height of uh, the, the bombing uh, plan in the fall of 94. And so right after um, this stuff happens, all where he, he's, he's getting all of these uh, bomb components, um, he, he's doing um, all of that, and, and he, he's getting these uh, storage lockers, and he's hiding things in them, the bombing components and so forth. Um, and then they go and they, they look at the property. Well, 
uh, right after that, he starts making these, Nichols starts making these plans to leave the country. And so what he does is on November 4th of 1994, um, the Philippine uh, consulate in Chicago issues Nichols his visa for the Philippines. The very next day on uh, the 5th uh, is the Roger Moore robbery. You know, we covered that on the last episode. So Nichols knows that you know, he's about to carry out a major act, criminal, major criminal act here. And he, I think, is scared and is thinking of leaving the country right after doing it. So we have the Moore robbery on the 5th. And then on the 6th of November, uh, Terry rents another storage locker, this one in Council Grove, Kansas. And so, again, he is storing materials there. In this case, he's storing some of the loot from the Roger Moore robbery. And we have to keep in mind that while all of this is happening here in November of 94, um, Andy Strassmeyer at Elohim City and Dennis Mahon and uh, Carol Howe make the first of three trips to Oklahoma City to case the Murrah building. So they, they go to Oklahoma City to case this building several times. And that first one was in November, at the very same time all these other actions are being carried out in furtherance of the bombing conspiracy. And so uh, then Nichols goes to Las Vegas on uh, November 16th, where he rents an, yet another storage locker. I mean, this guy had like four or five different storage lockers in Kansas and Vegas and Arizona, where uh, materials related to the bombing are being stored under fake names. Um, this one that he rents on the 16th of uh, November in 1994 in Vegas, he um, is storing things like uh, in there, there was a ski mask, pantyhose, wigs, um, gold and silver bullion, uh, coins, jade. All that is material that was stolen from Roger Moore. So he seems to have this Roger Moore loot. And then he also seems to have some disguises. And some of these disguises look like things you might use in an armed robbery. Like a ski mask, pantyhose, that kind of thing. Or even wigs, you know, trying to... to, to uh, uh, disguise yourself. So what happens here next is that on uh, November 22nd, 1994, right around Thanksgiving, Terry Nichols leaves for his last trip to the Philippines. He flies to Cebu City. And his ex-wife, Lana Padilla, wrote about this. And I'm going to read a quote of what she wrote because I think that, that it um, it's powerful. So she says, Terry was going to the Philippines again, and silently I wondered how he could afford to keep shuttling back and forth between Cebu, Kansas, and Las Vegas. A one-way ticket costs about $1,200, and over the past four years, Terry had traveled to the Philippines about four times a year. So that's like, you know, 16 different visits, and she's even wondering, where is he getting the money to do this? This guy works at gun shows, or he's a part-time ranch hand. He just doesn't have the money to do this kind of thing. So it's very unusual. And one thing to note, too, is that sometimes when Terry would travel to uh, the Philippines, he would do it when Marifei was here with him in the United States. So his mail order bride is here in the United States and he's traveling to the Philippines. And meanwhile, he doesn't speak Tagalog. He doesn't speak, you know, the Filipino language. Um, he doesn't have any family there. Marifei does. He's obviously not visiting her because she's here in the States. And that's something his ex-wife noted as well, is that sometimes he would travel to the Philippines uh, when, when Marifei was here. And she said, it doesn't make any sense. And I agree with that. 
It doesn't make any sense. And so I think this is an area where we do have legitimate questions about what is going on. And when people talk about potentially meeting with terrorists, maybe, maybe so, maybe it's a possibility. The thing I can say is that we just don't have any hardcore or strong evidence of that at this point. And so I have to emphasize that because I can't be saying that he met with Ramsey Youssef if I just don't have evidence for it. Yeah, I would say so, in my head, it makes a key difference whether it's the case or not, because I feel like that moves him from the useful idiot spot to maybe still kind of a useful idiot, but a useful idiot that's at least somewhat in the know. And a lot of people will say with McVeigh, like, oh, if he was sheep dipped, wouldn't he know that X, Y, and Z? It's like, I don't think that's how the, if there is crazy deep, which there are crazy deep state operations, I don't think that's how they uh, operate. I think it's probably tiered the amount of information you get depending on where you're at in this in it so uh you know say a lot like we talked about whether mcveigh died before and it's like you know he seemed to think he wasn't going to and mm-hmm. seems to be he probably did uh, i mean it's very very likely they convinced him one way just because you are an operative for the state doesn't mean you're going to get any sort of uh uh i mean yeah i guess you might get a little bit of additional you know cushion in some regards but it doesn't mean you're fully protected but, right. Yeah. Right. And I think with Nichols, he absolutely fits the profile of a person uh, who he would have no idea if he were some sort of asset or anything like that. He would have no idea of it. He absolutely uh, hated the government. And if he if he was doing anything like this, it would be um, without knowledge. Like he would not be what you call a witting asset. He would have been what you called an unwitting asset, meaning, you know, if he's being manipulated into doing things, he has no idea of it. And although, although a- to be fair, I will add to that. That's a big part of McVeigh is they, they they made him seem like that being or maybe that was the case. It's hard to tell what's real, what's not, what's a what's a, a you know, act, because I know that was a big thing that he was like at the Waco thing. Uh, and mm-hmm. stuff like that to make him seem like he was a crazy anti-government person. And maybe he was to some regard or another while also being an asset. It's always hard to tell people are more nuanced than, you know, that a lot of people tend to give him credit for. So it's hard to tell. So, I mean, yeah, it, it does seem to me that you're probably right, but it is also like you never know what's an act and what's not. So Absolutely right. And you raise a great point there because everything is a thousand shades of gray. I'm fond of saying there's, it's not binary. It's not black and white. And a great short, just a quick example of that. That is you have an ATF guy uh, who he was a, um, an ATF agent named Jay Dobbins, and he would go undercover. And the thing is, is he actually started almost living like an outlaw. He was undercover in these groups and these biker groups, but he was carrying out criminal acts. All, I mean, he was living the life of an outlaw biker and the line started to get blurred, you know, he, on the one hand, is this dirty cop, but on the other hand, he's actually do, carrying out these, these criminal acts and almost identifying with these criminals that he's supposed to be investigating. And you see that sometimes with that's the, one of the bigger problems of undercover work is that people can start to lose their identity and begin to identify with the people they're investigating. And so that's certainly a thing. And it's important to emphasize that, that there are a thousand shades of gray, you know, and that nothing is binary. So. Um, with this trip, though, that um, Nichols, his last trip that he made to the Philippines there, um, it really has some red flags um, that cause us to, to wonder what's going on. Um, Nichols' son, Josh, he seemed to know something was afoot 
And I think it's because Josh, you know, he he was with Nichols a lot of the time when Nichols was with McVeigh. He overheard their conversations. He overheard phone calls. Well, on this trip in November 22nd of 94, Josh actually started crying at the airport um, when his dad left. And he, we're t- this kid was like 14. And he, he, um, he said to his mom, he said, I'm never going to see my dad again. He was sobbing and said, he, I'm never going to see. He really thought that he was not going to see him again. And then Terry Nichols's own actions will see show that he thinks that he might not come back uh, as he carried with him on the plane for that trip two stun guns. And he brought these stun guns with him. And that's unusual. Why is he bringing like weapons on an airplane? And why does he seem to um, to uh, view this trip differently than he viewed the other ones? He never did bring any sort of weapons with him on the other trips to the Philippines. But in this one, he uh, he seems to be perhaps scared. And so before he leaves, he gives his ex-wife Lana a package and says, if I'm not back in 60 days, open this package and follow the instructions. And so Lana, of course, uh, as soon as he got on the plane, opened the package (laughs) right away. She wants to know what's in it. What she finds is there is a sealed letter to Tim McVeigh's sister, Jennifer. Inside that sealed letter, there is another letter to Tim McVeigh. There is Terry's life insurance policy. There are two handwritten lists that say on them, um, read and do immediately. So he's got a list of things that he wants Lana to take care of immediately, you know, if he's not back in 60 days. In his letter there, um, it was described by Lana as it, it read like a, quote, last will and testament. And she also said it looks like a damn suicide note. That's how terrified she was when she because this is something outside of his character. Totally. He was always pretty much a pretty good father and a sensitive type guy. And he talked a lot with his ex-wife, Lana. They were very good friends. She'd never seen him do anything like this before. And so the son knows something's up. He's afraid his dad's never going to come back. And Lana is terrified when she finds all of this stuff. And uh, also, in addition to that package that he left her, he hid $20,000 in cash uh, behind a cabinet in her kitchen. And uh, Lana went and she she retrieved that. And so in her mind, she's seeing what's going on here. How did he get all of this money? And part of it, of course, is from the more robbery proceeds. Um, but some of it we can't we can't account to that because the more uh, firearms have not yet been, all been been uh, sold. They haven't been sold. And he still has all the gold and jade and stuff that hasn't been sold. So where did the twenty thousand dollars come from? So all of these are great big question marks. And I am very, very suspicious of this last trip to the Philippines. So in addition, while- I do want to add real quick. I think it's probably a good time. I, I Maybe it's more, this is probably pointing out the obvious, obvious, but I think maybe it might be of use to some of the audience. Uh, I do feel like this uh, implies coercion to some extent. And that's not to say that, uh, you know, the way I see it in my head, that's not to say that he didn't initially get involved. I know we described him as maybe sort of a pushover at one point to where, I mean, he did have some sort of connections with McVeigh and sort of got deeper and deeper and his crew. And there gets to be a point, and it was a frequent thing even nowadays where, uh, or maybe I guess kind of in the past, where he would say he knew certain things or implied he did, but won't speak on such because he's afraid for his family's safety, which, you know, even plays into him being a good father and having a family because 
you know, if you have something to lose, you have something to lose. So uh, there, there definitely is. I mean, this is even like a gang thing, blood in, blood out. Like once you're in, you don't get to get out. And I mean, I'm not saying he knew this full well. Possibly he did. Possibly he didn't. Uh, it's very easy. It was a sliding thing and he ended up being too deep over his head. And it was just a matter of like, hey, you know too much. You're not able to leave this. So uh, there's definitely an aspect to that, I think, which I do think we should, you know, you know, paint our, our thoughts of him in that in that uh, in that, you know, uh, perspective to some extent, I think, because uh, that's the kind of vibe I get. Yeah. But sorry, Definitely. No, that's yeah. a great way to look at it, because what you're finding here is that it's right after uh, they, they've they've obtained all of the bomb components. They've got the nitromethane. They've got the fertilizer. Um, they've got all of the bomb components. Uh, Nichols was just made to rob Roger Moore. As soon as all that's done, he flees the country and he thinks he's going to die and he's terrified. So clearly there's something going on here and, and he, sure it could speak to coercion in some respects. Um, and he, uh, his later statements about various people in the bombing imply that he is scared for his family's life. If he talks about, for example, John Doe two, he says that he knows who John Doe number two's identity is, but he will not reveal it out of fear for his family's safety. Um, he Which I is, will add this, if anyone's think, if anyone, especially if you're just now watching this episode, maybe think we sound crazy, we'll get into later episodes some of the mysterious deaths uh, surrounding uh, this case, which kind of lends more credence to the aspect of, oh yeah, he should shut the fuck up, because um, mm -hmm. there were definitely people who you know didn't or were going to talk and uh, you know met a weird demise. So, but go on. Absolutely right, and also when you're looking at. Um, a conspiracy involving possible, like, for example, Nichols knew that McVeigh was meeting with people at Elohim City, bank robbers. Um, he knew these were Aryan Brotherhood types. And he he knew, you know, that people like that will, you know, they'll kill you for talking. And so he's terrified on that angle. And then if he is meeting with any type of Arab terrorists, he knows, you know, they'll kill you too. And so it doesn't matter who it is if he's working with. If you're working with someone in a regarding a bombing plot like this, the people who would be involved in that kind of thing would not hesitate to kill you. And so he has, I think, legitimate reasons to be scared. But I also view um, Nichols with some level of um, skepticism as well, because one thing to note is that when he was over in the Philippines, um, he had a Filipino tour guide. Her name was Daisy and uh, Daisy Legaspi. And she filed a sworn affidavit and told the Philippine police um, that Terry had asked her one time if she knew someone who knows how to make bombs. And of course, she said, what are you talking about? Of course not. You know, and she thought it was a weird question and reported it because she she was f freaked out by it. And so why what's he doing asking about that? And, and secondly to that, um, Nichols' own father-in-law, uh, Marifay's father, uh, he was a Philippine policeman. And he told the Philippine police that he found books in Terry Nichols' luggage um, that were about explosives. He had chemistry books in there about explosives. So what's he doing taking this material to the Philippines? He's got material with him about bomb making. He's asking about bomb making. He's scared while he's there. He's clearly, I think, 
uh, showing uh, behavior that shows that he might be involved in criminal activity. I think that goes without saying. Yeah. All right. Uh, do you got any more on Nichols or is this? Oh, yeah. The... All right. Let's get into it. All yeah. Right. Yeah. So with what's going on here uh, with his final trip to the Philippines, um, let's see here. Let me get back to my. Oh, yeah. So we were at the spot there where uh, Lana finds his package. So in his package um, on the letter that he wrote to McVeigh, uh, he wrote on this letter, he wrote as far as heat, none that I'm aware of. You're on your own now. Go for it. And so, you know, the FBI looks at this letter and they're saying, well, he's talking here about law enforcement as far as heat. None that I'm aware of. He wrote, you're on your own now. Go for it, which that seems to imply to me. I think that Nichols is trying to sever his participation in the bombing plot. Or maybe he meant that that letter be delivered to McVeigh in the event of his death. You know, he's saying now you're on your own uh, because, it, you know, that that was a letter that was intended to be opened only if he did not return in 60 days. So he's over in the Philippines. Uh, he stays there throughout, uh, throughout December. And uh, one thing to note is that in January, early January of 1995, Philippine detectives find Ramsey Youssef's bomb making factory in the Philippines and they get hold of his laptop and they arrest his right-hand man, Abdul Hakim Murad. And that happens while Terry Nichols is in the Philippines. And that's just one thing to note because we'll revisit um, this the supposed Ramsey Yusuf connection here in a moment. So Terry Nichols then decides to return to the United States on uh, January 16th of 1995. He comes back from the Philippines and with this trip having been um, late November, all of December and January, the, the thing that comes to my mind is, is it seems that Nichols thought that McVeigh was going to strike during Christmas. Uh, they thought he was going to use the bombing components perhaps over the holidays, and he wanted to be out of the country when it happened in order to give himself an alibi. On the other hand, I think that he might have been meeting someone there simply because of how scared he was with uh, the stun guns and with open this stuff if i'm not back in 60 days obviously he is terrified you know and something is going on here and that's an area that i think requires more investigation i'm not um ready to buy into the the whole ramsey yusuf thing but i'm not going to uh just uh, dismiss uh, anything because there's too much, too many red flags here for me to dismiss it. Yeah. I mean, it could also be a matter of he's worried if it is going to happen over Christmas, that he's a loose end that could be taken care of. So absolutely. Yeah. And especially if they do have connections that are somewhere somewhat involved, because I know this possible uh, Middle Eastern terrorist thing kind of opens. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's it kind of reminiscent of the JFK thing where a lot of people theorize who killed them. And it's like, well, it could be the CIA, it could be the Russians, could be the mob. It's kind of the same. It's starting to, you know, as we get further, it's starting to realize there's a lot more going on than just the possible Fed stuff. Uh, it could be the same concept of, I don't know, it could be. I mean, I, I hesitate to think it's the, any sort of Middle Eastern terrorist because, for one, uh, the idea that, you know, as we'll get into later, some of the weird deaths, I don't really feel like the uh, Middle Eastern terrorists have that kind of a grasp. Uh, in the, the United States, they'll pull off that kind of stuff, but uh, perhaps they do. I don't know. 
but obviously the Aryan connections as well. But uh, yeah. Um, so I, I just thought that was interesting that, you know, kind of opens up more uh, possible conspiracy angles and just the uh, traditional fed, you know, but I still lean toward fed, but you know, mm-hmm. but go on. Um, no, you're right. He had all the reasons to be terrified here. He was very much in over his head and he was directly involving himself in getting the bomb components with McVeigh. Uh, he obviously is scared of this Jax figure because he is covering up his identity, even though, you know, Marifay's address book, there's evidence there where either Terry or Marifay were trying to write his name out and spell it. So he know, he knows who this guy is. And for him to say in 2005, oh, you know, I was alone when I visited Cassville. It's obviously a lie. And uh, the, the one theme that always comes out with Terry Nichols is that he is always hesitant to divulge more information for uh, out of fear for his uh, his family, fear for his son's life and his ex-wife, Lana and uh, uh, Marifay, fear, fear for their lives. And so he definitely, I think, is in over his head. And like you said, would be kind of a, a liability at this point. And so uh, when he comes back to the United States um, in March of 1995, Um, he basically told McVeigh that he wants to back out of the bombing plot and he tries to start distancing himself from McVeigh, avoiding, uh, avoiding him, that kind of thing. And then later McVeigh did complain about that. He complained about Nichols and Fortier. Uh, and he said, you know, he, um, talking about Terry, he said he and Mike Fortier were men who liked to talk tough, but in the end their bitches and kids ruled. And so he's complaining, you know, because these guys care about their families and uh, that takes precedence for them over over McVeigh's plans, over his terrorist plans. So at this time, though, even though he tries to stay away from McVeigh, he does get roped back in again and he is inevitably involved in the actions furthering the bombing conspiracy in March and April. And so as an example of of some of those things, I'd like to talk about a few of them. One of them is that on April 15th of 1995, Terry Nichols, uh, McVeigh, and John Doe too were spotted at a diner, the Santa Fe Trail Diner in Harrington. They were having breakfast there. And Barbara Wittenberg, the owner of the diner, uh, served them coffee and she made small talk with them. And she had asked them, um, they had a rider truck parked in the lot. And she asked them, you know, if one of them was moving and where to. And she said that John Doe number two spoke up and said, Oklahoma City. And she said that Tim McVeigh gave him an icy cold uh, look when he said that. And she said she could tell uh, from their reaction that they wanted no part in any further conversation. And she decided to get out of it. And so a question that Terry Nichols needs to answer is, who is he with on April 15th at the Santa Fe Trail Diner? Who is he with 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 McVeigh? Who was John Doe 2? And this also goes back to him saying that he knows who John Doe 2 is, but he won't say who it is. And this is an example of, well, yeah, he would have to know who it is because he's there with the guy. He also would have to know who Rob Jacks is because he's there with the guy. 
And so this is uh, something that shows to me that um, uh, Terry Nichols knows a lot more than he has let on. He still has things that he could tell us, which I think he should, and that the American people deserve to know, and that he has an obligation to tell us uh, because he did not get the death penalty and he does have the luxury of living uh, in spite of the fact that he could have been put to death for this and he wasn't. So he really, I think, should come forward about these things. So in addition to that, that was on the 15th of April. Um, on April 16th, uh, Nichols drives down to Oklahoma City to pick up uh, Tim McVeigh. Tim McVeigh had stashed his Mercury marquee there in the alley behind the uh, Murrah or near the Murrah building. And Nichols drove down there to pick him up to give him a ride back to Kansas. So he's still helping him out here. On uh, the 17th of April, 1995, uh, witnesses reported seeing a yellow rider truck that was parked um, at the rear of Terry Nichols' residence. I don't know, I have a whole lot of detail on that. Um, sighting, but I thought it was worth including because it was interesting. You know, what you know, what are they doing there with the rider truck at Terry Nichols' house? And um, then on April 18th, just a you know day or two after 1995, um, there are a number of witnesses who spot Terry Nichols, Tim McVeigh, and John Doe too. And uh, April um, 18th, there in Newkirk, Oklahoma. Um, Witnesses recall seeing a rider truck, a uh, pickup truck, pull into the lot. Um, the rider truck is getting gas. Uh, the pickup truck is there in a convoy with them. And uh, Nichols comes into the Easy Mart and he purchases uh, burritos for the entire group and he heats them up in the microwave. And the clerks recall seeing uh, Nichols go outside and he passes some of those burritos to the two men who are in the rider truck. And then he goes himself and gets back into his pickup. And so, again, we have an example here where we have Terry Nichols, and he is with McVeigh and John Doe, too. So clearly, he must know who it is or at least um, have an explanation as to how he was in the company of this person. And so we have um, these situations where Terry Nichols is with McVeigh and other accomplices and he has not told us who they are and I believe he needs to and um, there are people who've been in contact with Nichols um, maintaining correspondence with him he's in this supermax prison and he is um, uh, what they call administrative segregation so they like read all your mail that kind of thing so it's probably very difficult to maintain a correspondence with him where you would be able to ask him any questions because the people who are opening his mail probably would not uh, let him see uh, letters if you're talking about the crime so it's going to be difficult i think i'd like to know too though is he is able to talk to his attorneys and for a time jesse trinidu was his attorney and so it makes me wonder what he might have told Jesse Trinidu. If it was anything interesting, Jesse hasn't told me. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't know. Uh, Jesse has a, there's a method to his madness and he has a reason for doing everything that he does. So I'm hoped of, hoping then to find out more about what Terry Nichols might know. So 
I just kind of want to um, recap a couple of these things and then take any questions if anybody has questions about some of this material. Um, and Nichols, uh, when we say that he was kind of a useful idiot or it was a pushover, that very much is a good characterization. He was a pushover. He would kind of do whatever McVeigh asked him to do. And at the same time, I, um, I think that he also obviously is guilty of uh, being an active participant when he's doing things like buying the fertilizer, renting storage lockers, um, keeping the material in there, um, robbing Roger Moore, you know, he, he, he didn't have to do any of this stuff and he did do it. So there is kind of a fine line there between being a pushover and being an active an active participant. And I think the evidence shows that he was an active participant. And right now, the biggest problem is, is that he's withholding information about these other conspirators. And that, that infuriates me because I know he knows it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can sympathize uh, being a family man myself. Uh, yeah. I totally, honestly, I think if the, he is genuinely concerned about the wall, it would be nice to have more information. If he is genuinely concerned about his safety, uh, his family safety, in my personal opinion, that's the correct priorities to have in life. Obviously, you shouldn't have been in this situation in the first place. But, you know, I'd let a thousand people die before, you know, anything happens to any of my family personally. Now, that uh, makes perfect yeah, sense. But, and you, you raise a very good point there. You know, he cares a lot about his son and he cares for his family. He doesn't want to see any harm brought to them. And yeah. so that, I think, is a good point. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, obviously it'd be nice if he came up with more, but he probably has a le legitimate concerns, I would assume. Uh, but yeah. Uh, do you have anything else to add to this before we get to questions or? Yeah. So just on the um, the Ramsey Youssef part, basically, mm -hmm. and that's mostly advocated in a book called The Third Terrorist by Jane and Davis. Can you and... expand on who Ramsey Youssef is for the audience? Yeah. Ramsey Youssef He's basically was a um, an expert an expert bomb maker and he's the guy who designed the bomb in the 1993 world trade center plot and this is where a truck bomb was put in the world trade center and so ramsey yusuf is this uh, bomb maker he put a bomb on um, a uh, filipino airline that was flying to japan and it blew up um, and killed a japanese tourist who was sitting in that seat um, and so he has yeah, this basically is this terrorist bomb expert, which and, that's another one I want to cover one of these days, because apparently there's a lot of weird stuff there, which I guess weirdly kind of ties to this. If it's there is some sort of Ramsey use of connection that would fit neatly into a lot of the weird stuff that uh, with the 93. I don't know a ton about that, but I've listened to Richard Grove talk about it before, and I know there's a lot of weird shit there. So mm -hmm. but but go on. <laughs> Yeah, so how he might tie in to Terry Nichols, uh, I briefly touched on this earlier, is where the, uh, an, a gentleman by the name of Edwin Angeles was a member of a terrorist group called Abu Sayyaf, which is an Al-Qaeda-affiliated Islamist terror group that was largely in the Philippines. And this guy, Edwin Angeles, was a member. And he was um, arrested uh, by Philippine police in 1996, and he was interrogated there. And Angeles had said under interrogation that sometime in the early 90s, uh, he was at uh, a meeting at the Del Monte. There was a Del Monte labeling factory, you know, like puts labels on cans, like a cannery. Um, he he uh, went to this meeting at this, fa this abandoned factory in Davao City on the island of Mindanao. And he said that um, Ramsey Youssef and his field lieutenants, um, Shaw and uh, Akeem uh, Murad, uh, were in attendance and that the fourth 
invitee of this terrorist group was an American who was introduced as the farmer. And so in Jana Davis's book, she postulates that Terry Nichols was the farmer. And she then takes uh, examples where Terry Nichols is placing phone calls uh, to the Philippines. And she casts those in a conspiratorial light basically saying, suggesting that he might be trying to communicate with Arab terrorists. But what I found and when I looked into this is that these times he's calling this Filipino rooming house is uh, times when his wife was in the Philippines. And so it would make sense that he would be calling to talk to her. And like I mentioned earlier too, the, the pattern of behavior when you're trying, like if you're trying to reach like your wife or your girlfriend and she's not answering and you're maybe you're suspicious, you know, that she's not doing what she says she's doing, maybe that would make you call her 13 to 20 times like we saw him doing. Whereas if you're trying to reach some terrorist buddy or whatever, you're not going to be calling frantically, you know, 20 times or whatever. I got the I got the impression that he was this guy who thought his wife was cheating on him and he was trying to reach her. That's what it looked like to me. But yeah. All right. Uh, I did want to add, I, I just thought of it, uh, I was meant to add it earlier. Uh, I know there is a common, it seems to be a common thing with Nichols is that he didn't completely know all the details of when, where, how, um, it, I mean, be that true or not, I don't know. But I, I will say, because, I mean, not not that I'm necessarily, you know, rooting for this guy or anything, but I do think it's, you need to kind of look at things and not just black and white, like you said, Thousand Shades of Grey. I get the vibe that he probably would not have been okay with, you know, say the children dying and stuff like that. So um, I do think there's a distinction to be made between a person who wants to take out, uh, say something like ATF agents, which there is a, there's an, while I don't advocate it for it, there's an argument to be made, you know, in the light of Waco and stuff that many, you know, people who are, you know, uh, Liberty warriors or whatever may have legitimate uh, grievances uh, against some of the actions they performed. And, you know, in some ways you could see that in, in a, in a similar situation as like a war where one enemy does one thing. I'm not saying you should do that. I mean, I'm not a fan of the ATF, but I'm also not a fan of political violence. I don't think it works out well, uh, whether you are morally justified or not. I think pragmatically it only makes your case worse, but I do think there is a distinction to be made between someone who would take out someone that could be possibly, you know, if you put on their frame of mind, a legitimate target and then innocence. And I, so I don't, I do get the vibe that he may not have been aware of that, because uh, it seems he wasn't completely sure. And that was a common thing. A lot of people were like, oh, we didn't think we were going to do this building. I thought you were going to do it at a different time, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think that, you know, people should try to see it through that light, possibly as one possible thing, because I, I do see Terry Nichols in some regards a little bit of a sympathetic character in some ways, although, you know, it, I, I don't think, uh, you know, obviously I don't, I don't advocate what he did in any way, shape, or form. Uh, although it seems to be like he kind of wanted to get out in the in the end anyway. So I don't think he really was comfortable with the situation he was in. Uh, I think he got in too deep over his head and just had, you know, you know, a liabilities of his family and was trying to keep them safe. So, uh, you know, I think that's the way people should, you know, maybe view this a little bit instead of just, you know, simple terms of good and evil. I think that doesn't serve anyone well. Um, but all right, before we get any questions, do you have anything you want to add to Nichols? We were going to cover another character, but I think for the sake of time, we'll probably cover that next one. Okay. Yeah, I agree with you that if uh, Terry Nichols had known that there was a daycare in the Target, I think that he would not have been on board with that. Um, and also, 
Nichols did not seem to know the date and time or the target because it seemed to me that he thought the bombing was going to happen over the Christmas holidays in 94. And that's why he wanted to be out of the country, that he was trying to be out of the country as an alibi or to be away when it happened. And when he drove back from Oklahoma City on April 16th, when he picked up, he picked McVeigh up down there after McVeigh stashed his car, um, they're driving back to Kansas. And McVeigh says, um, you're going to see something really big pretty soon. And Nichols allegedly said, well, what are you going to do? Rob a bank? Like he doesn't He's acting, at least in his FBI interview, he's acting like he doesn't know what's going to happen. Well, I think that's partially true. I think that um, that McVeigh, uh, his operational security was such that he used Terry Nichols as uh, an asset and a tool in his plan. And he kept not only information from Nichols, but I think that he might also have kept Nichols from knowing the identities or from being around some of the other conspirators. And I get the impression that Nichols may have only known that some of these other conspirators were very dangerous people. He may have only known that much. And, you know, uh, McVeigh could have just said, these are some guys, some rough guys I know from Elohim City. You better not say a damn thing. They will kill your family. That's all he probably had to say. And so there is some uh, truth to saying that he might be a sympathetic figure insofar as he didn't have full awareness of the bombing plot, and he probably would not have been on board with uh, killing the kids. And um, he was a guy, I think, who got caught up uh, with the wrong crowd, the wrong people at the wrong time. And given a different situation and a different group of people, he would have had an entirely different life, I think. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's get into some of these. Uh, I got one super chat from Larry. Made you look. You sure did. Thanks for the 20 bucks, Larry. Uh, I always appreciate it when you come here and make me look. Um, all right, let's touch on some of these. Do, 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 do. Uh, yeah, someone said, uh, is it no-knock raid? This doesn't really relate to this, but, uh, yeah, no, I agree. Uh, no-knock raids I don't think ever should happen, no matter what, under any circumstances whatsoever. I can't, I, I don't find them justifiable, because even if it is some crazy hardened criminal, it's like, okay, well, how do you expect this to go down when you break into their house, guns a-blazing? Uh, does anyone have evidence with any, uh, any links with compelling evidence that 9 levels inside job? I don't have a lot on that. I would suggest go check out Ryan Dawson at amcreport.com. Or uh, Adam Fitzgerald. Uh, those are good guys for that, for sources for that. I mean, I don't remember uh, Ryan Fitzgerald's name of the show. Or Adam Fitzgerald. I think it just might be Adam Fitzgerald if you look it up yep. on YouTube. So, uh, Kyle, he's one of my patrons. Hey, friends. Hey, man. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, do, 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 do. Uh, I'm not sure what he's referencing here, but maybe you do. Is there any connection okay. with Mina AR during all this? Yeah, I know what he's talking about there, Mena, Arkansas. So there is actually kind of an interesting connection there insofar as, okay, you know, Mena was an airport in Arkansas where the CIA was importing cocaine in the 1980s. They were dropping um, uh, illegal cocaine shipments at that airport. And one thing to note is that um, we talked about Roger Moore on the last episode, and Roger Moore was doing a lot of work for the FBI. And Roger Moore's FBI handler was an agent named Tom Ross. And Tom Ross was an agent, a dirty cop with the FBI who worked out of the Hot Springs field office. And uh, Tom Ross was assigned to the FBI's MENA, Arkansas investigation. And 
we have information, we have documents that show, FBI documents that show that Tom Ross is responsible for making evidence disappear in the MENA investigation. He made various uh, bits of evidence that they had concerning the CIA disappear from the FBI's files. And so it's interesting that you have Roger Moore, who is a known CIA asset and Iran-Contra player who is tied into these MENA figures. His own FBI handler is involved in some sabotaging the FBI's investigation of what was going on at MENA. So definitely there's a bit of a connection there. All right. Kyle says it was Zog. Obviously joking on, uh, on Zog being a big – although, I mean – uh, to be fair, there is, you know, while I don't completely go down the full Aryan way, there is definitely a lot of weird connections with the United States and Israel and, you know, Zionism. I'm, I don't have anything against Jewish folks, but I, I fucking hate Zionism. So those are two distinct two distinct things. Uh, uh, soft power is the way to win. Uh, yeah, as opposed to hitting the state head on, you're going to lose that battle every time unless you have, you know, built up some sort of, a, uh, you know, infrastructure to some extent yeah i'm a big fan of uh agorism so anyone wants to check out my other content that's the way to do it you control your uh get control of your wealth and you know create networks controlling your own wealth creating parallel economies that's the way to go if you genuinely want to fight the state because fighting them head on is usually going to just make them position you as a make you look like the bad guy and it's going to discredit your cause in every way shape and form so uh, fight them in the way that really works, and that's uh, the dollar. Um, so you know they control you through your wealth. So, but uh, yeah, I think that's all we got. So if you want to drop your plugs, we'll go ahead and get out of here. I'll, we'll probably we haven't said the next one, but we'll probably do Tuesday as long as you're available again. So, so do okay. next Tuesday probably. So, but sure. Uh, if you want to drop your plugs. Yeah. So basically, if people want to read anything that I have written about the Oklahoma City bombing, I like to write essays about the subject. I have a manuscript that's thus far incomplete, but you can find uh, you can find me on Twitter at Booth. That's B-O-O-T-H underscore O-K-C. And if you look at my Twitter profile, you'll see a link there to my Medium page where I have a number of essays that I've written published, including one about this Robert Jacks figure that we discussed today. I encourage people to go read that, see his, uh, uh, to see the police sketch of him and to read about him. Um, and then also my essays are published in Garrison, the Journal of History and Deep Politics. And you can find Garrison on Twitter as well. Uh, I'll have an essay in the next issue about uh, prior warning and some of these neo-Nazi figures who uh, seem to have known about the Oklahoma City bombing before it happened, which I think gives us insight into who McVeigh's accomplices were. Um, so yeah, just hit me up on Twitter, booth underscore OKC. Happy to answer any questions and also check out libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC for all of your document and primary source needs. All right, cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you want to end up sending me those links, I'll put them in the video description too so people can find it, anything applicable to this episode. And we can also do it at prior episodes if you ever want to do that, if you ever get bored and want to take some time to do that. If not, it's cool. They can just go make make people actually do a little work and find yourself and look into and do digging. Um, yeah, you, this is the No Way Jose Show. You can find me on YouTube, all the major auto packages, Odyssey. If you want to follow me on Twitter, at uh, Senor Jose 2020, you can follow me on Facebook as well. I have a tendency to get nuked off Twitter, so. Uh, Facebook is pretty much always there. While I don't really do much on there, if you need to contact me for whatever reason, that's a good place to hit me up, especially if I'm nuked, uh, you know, it's good backup. Uh, if you want to support me monetarily, patreon.com, so noehose2020, like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. We'll be back soon to do another one. I think we'll probably knock out mo uh, all the other characters. If not, 
I mean, if you do more digging and we, we go uh, deeper, I'm cool with it. We can do as many episodes on all these characters, but I think most of the rest of the characters are pretty uh, minor characters, but I do think they're essential to understanding it. Oh, yeah, someone did say, I forgot to point it out, what's the significance of all this research regarding the OKC bombing? I think they're referring to, like, how we're going to these individual characters. I do think it's important to... I know most people, when they cover this, do, like, an episode, maybe two. Uh, I think it's important to really, you know, emphasize how much more there is to all of this than just the the, the surface-level stuff. Because if we just did if we just did five, ten minutes on uh, Nichols, even if we covered the key stuff, I feel like it, you'd be like, it leaves doubt in your mind. But when you it go does, yeah. this extensive, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, there's a whole lot more going on here. Um, so, you know, and when you, we've gone to this extent showing all these different characters that are linked and somehow McVeigh and Nichols end up being the one that get the bulk of the, uh, the shit, um, you know, you know, it makes you wonder. So, and I, that's kind of what I want people to, you know, take away from this. So there's definitely a whole lot more going on here. So. Yeah, but, I, to I totally agree. If they were to make, for example, just a documentary about the Oklahoma City bombing, I don't think that would be sufficient. I think this is a subject that would require like a mini series. Like mm -hmm. it, it would require like a Netflix 10 to 12 part mini series because of how deep it goes, how much information is there. And I just encourage people go back and watch No Way Jose, the episode about um, Andy Strassmeyer the episode about Roger Moore, and you will see right there that there is way more to this story than the official story of McVeigh and Nichols. But we do have to necessarily touch on McVeigh and Nichols because they were the key, you know, the key people guilty of, of this terrorist event. Um, but we also have to discuss more because there are other people who are not apprehended, who are still to this day never arrested. And there are still questions outstanding about these intelligence connections. I think it's unresolved. I think it's a story that we're going to see more documentaries about. And hopefully, if I have anything to do with it, we're going to find more students to this case who begin writing about it. Yeah. And on, on that, you know, like I, I say, I've been saying past couple ones, share this around and or, or share, uh, share, uh, share Booth's name around, uh, you know, uh, your Booth underscore OKC on Twitter. Share all this around, uh, you know, trying to get this on larger platforms or just other platforms, uh, you know, get other people familiar with this. Because I do think it's an important story to get out. I got one more in the, 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 the nick of time. Is there anything to the theory, the evidence of the, the Clintel cartel was destroyed? Uh, yeah, we're going to touch on that later. Uh, we're going to we're going to touch on that later, the white papers. Uh, so I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But we'll, we'll get into that later, Kyle. We'll, it's already on my notes to cover. That'll be towards the end. I know a lot of people probably came here for things like trying to do yiki stuff like that. And don't get me wrong, all this stuff's juicy, and that's what brought me to this case in the first place. But I think to get a proper understanding, we have to start with the characters and work backwards uh, or work towards that stuff. Because if I just started with um, yiki or trying to do or white papers, it just kind of just, it, for one, it kind of comes off kooky because we didn't set that foundation. Also, it just kind of is like, ooh, or it's like, and it leaves people like me who are like, well, there's more to this, you know, wondering. So I don't, I don't want to leave anyone wondering. Uh, I know if I was just chasing clicks, views, whatever, I probably would have led with that. But I feel like narratively, that's the wrong way to go. So, uh, but yeah, we'll definitely get into that later. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, we'll, we'll stop meandering and we'll get out of here. I appreciate your time, Richard. And this is a, uh, we're out. Thanks, Jose. Thank you.